That'd be great, actually. I'll just hang out over here. How's it? Okay, great. If I do this. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> All right, great. Um, so you were born in Iran? Iran or Iran? No, I was not born in Iran. I was made in Iran. <laughs> gotcha. I was, I was in my mom's belly when they left Iran. And when did they leave Iran? In 84. And why did they leave? My parents got married after the revolution and they got pregnant with me and looked at the big picture of we don't want to raise a family in a oppressed country. So during that time, my father's older brother and a few other family members all were attempting to escape Iran. Essentially, they used passports, each other's passports, illegal documents, and escaped. And candles got scattered all over. My dad's twin sister ended up in Toronto. My youngest uncle on my dad's side ended up in California. I had my older aunt end up in Denmark. So there was people in, that ended up in Sweden, which were my parents, and another aunt. And then some people ended up in the U.S. My oldest uncle and my youngest uncle ended up in Texas and California. So they just kind of scattered all over. My parents came to Sweden, to Stockholm, Sweden. Well, they ended up in the southern part of Sweden first, Vietlanda, which is kind of like the southern tip of Sweden. And they lived at a refugee camp and got their paperwork in order and then moved to Stockholm and my dad did culinary school in Stockholm and my mom started working and then they had me and then a couple of months after they had me my mom got pregnant again and then you know they were both working and we were living in Sweden and then my parents decided it was mainly my dad my dad decided that uh, we should move to Plano Texas <laughs> did he get a job so, or something, or did, did he just... So, to, yeah. at that point, my dad's oldest brother and my dad's youngest brother, his two brothers, both lived in Plano, Texas. They had started a chain of restaurants, casual dining restaurants, and obviously my dad has hospitality background, but I think it was, honestly, he came and visited Texas the summer before we moved to Texas in, the, in 99 and was like... Oh my God, it's so warm, it's so sunny. Everybody has a big house with a pool and drive a fancy car. This is the dream. The dream, just, yeah, know, right, the American dream. Drank it, drank it, just like, drank that milkshake and was just like intoxicated by it. Yeah, and, like, you know, like three from floors, yeah, <laughs> three floors of air conditioning eight months out of the year. Yeah, and was like, I want this. This is the life that I want. I want this big giant mansion and I want this car and I want this life. So came back to Sweden and you know, granted, I understand parts of his thinking behind this. Like we lived in a very cold country. The season changes are, are beautiful, but it's cold, it's dark. We were separated from family members and I think he really wanted to be closer to his brothers and have some family to be around. Your family needed to flee that country so badly that the family was basically completely split up. Yeah, completely split up. And think about this, like my mom was 20 years old when she left Iran. 
and didn't look back. And, uh, you know, she did not go back and visit until about the first time of her going back was less than 10 years ago. Wow. So, you know, in her 50s. And my dad hasn't been back since he left. And so he picked up and left and has no desire of going back. It is dangerous, like he escaped the military. There's not really a guarantee that he will be safe or like maybe they'll punish him or take him to prison. And I don't even think it's necessarily that. I think he uses that maybe as an excuse, but I also think he doesn't want to go back. He was so traumatized by seeing a revolution happen and being a part of that. We have family members that were executed in the revolution. My grandfather from my mother's side, he's an oil engineer, so you know, he worked with a lot of international businesses and he got taken to prison during the revolution and got lashed and tortured for being accused of being a spy and working with the U.S. and other international businesses. You know, it left a very bad taste in his mouth and in my mother's mouth and so they just didn't want to go back. I think it was very traumatizing seeing it all, seeing the changes, not remembering a country that you grew up in and you had a certain image of. I mean, I can kind of relate to that in a different way, not in like such a political violent way, but every time that I would go back to Sweden and visit, like we would go every summer, and every time I just felt more and more disconnected to this country that I once called home, you know? Like, I would go see my friends, I would go see the places, but every single time I'd go back, things had changed, and I felt more and more separated from it to the point where the last time I was there, which was actually a long time ago, uh, the last time I was in Sweden was in 2004. The great mystery of any presidency is that the sovereign people of these United States choose a leader and then only afterwards in the day by day do they find out who that person really is. History reveals this. History throws you what it throws you, and you never know what's coming. Ladies and gentlemen, my husband, the love of my life, Dick Cheney, the Vice President of the United States. I accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States. Senator Kerry has made it clear that he would use military force only if approved by the United Nations. <laughs> Kerry would let Paris decide when America needs defending. I want Bush to decide. I'm honored by your support and I accept your nomination for President of the United States. Only the most deluded of us could doubt the necessity of this war. Like all wars, this one will have its ups and downs. But we must fight. We must. Now, because we have faced challenges with resolve, we have historic goals within our reach and greatness in our future. We will build a safer world and a more hopeful America, and nothing will hold us back. It was 
because at one point me and my sister just kind of looked around and we were sitting having conversations with our friends and then I was almost watching I was like looking down watching this whole place and these people just like happened without me even feeling like I was a part of it and we felt super disconnected and we're like whoa we don't belong here anymore like we actually feel American now and we feel more like we're actually missing our malls and our tinsel town and like the theater and like you know, smoking weed with our friends in, in high school in Plano, you know, just like, we just felt so separated and it was crazy. So like, yeah, I feel like that's how my parents felt. And I think that's one of the reasons why my dad has no desire of going back. I think he's really traumatized. And, you know, my dad lost his father the year after they moved. So the year I was born in 85, my grandfather, my dad's dad passed away. And so he hasn't even been to his grandfather's grave, you know, and it's just... Wow. You know, and my grandmother, my mom's mom just passed away um, in July and in Iran. And it was kind of like a sudden death, like her health took a toll. And my mom ended up going back, but you know, neither me, my sister or my father were able to be there to get that closure, which is like super difficult, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah that's the kind so, of stuff that people just take for granted. Oh yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's hard to process your feelings and not mourn with your family like you don't think about that you know and it was really hard for me too because when my grandmother passed away like and actually both of my grandmothers are now dead because my other grandmother my dad's mother passed away last year in sweden and i wasn't able to go back and you know i'm just like mourning i'm at work and or i'm mourning around my friends and i'm crying and i'm showing like, well, what you should, you know, why aren't you going back? And it was just very difficult because I wasn't able to really talk about it at work and be like, yeah, I can't go back right now because I'm in this limbo and I'm in this gray area and I don't have the paperwork where I can fly out there and come back and just, you know, like, this is making me super emotional, just like not having closure and being there with my family and like, you know, saying your goodbyes and. I think that's the hardest part with all of this, not being able to experience those things that everybody like takes for granted every day. It's moments that you can't get back. It's moments that you need in order to move forward. You need closure. It's been a crazy, crazy uh, journey to go through all this. First of all, because I'm in this gray area right now, I don't have a driver's license. So that's one of the biggest things is I drive around my car without a license, which is putting me at risk every day. Another big one is I've been in the U.S. for 19 years now, and I'm a part of society. I'm paying taxes. Like, I went to high school here. I went to college here. But I don't feel like I'm a part of society because I, I can't vote and I can't be a part of the local government or even the federal voting for a president or anything like that, which is really difficult. That's the big one for me. Another big thing that kind of is hard for me, and this doesn't really necessarily go into my status, but it kind of goes into growing up in Sweden, like living my the first 15 years of my life in Sweden and then moving here as a teenager, and then living the second half of my life here, is there's this disconnect. You know, like I'll have conversations with people at work or friends, and they'll talk about something from their childhood or a movie, and there are things that I missed out on 
as a part of my youth that I can't relate to. And it goes both ways. It goes when I go back to Sweden or it goes back to being involved with my Middle Eastern background. I'm disconnected in one way or another with every point of my ethnic and cultural background. I never have really felt a 100% sense of belonging in any of the ethnicities that I've experienced or cultures. I don't feel native Persian. I don't feel native Swedish. And I certainly don't feel native to this country. So I've just always had bits and pieces of each that I've kind of connected to, but never fully felt connected or a sense of belonging to any of them. Okay. This is A Pale Blue Dot by Carl Sagan. There's a picture of the Earth. Well, here, this is the note from the Planetary Society. The excerpt from Sagan's book Pale Blue Dot was inspired by an image taken at Sagan's suggestion by Voyager 1 on February 14, 1990. As the spacecraft left our planetary neighborhood for the fringes of the solar system, engineers turned it around for one last look at its home planet. Voyager 1 was about 6.4 billion kilometers, wow, 4 billion miles away, and approximately 32 degrees above the elliptic plane when it captured this portrait of our world. I don't know what the elliptic plane is. Caught in the center of scattered light rays, a result of taking the picture so close to the sun, Earth appears as a tiny point of light, a crescent only 0.12 pixel in size. So there's this tiny picture of the Earth from 4 billion miles away. And Carl Sagan writes, Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every quote, superstar, unquote, every, quote, supreme leader, unquote, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. 
how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Hmm. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. I really wanted to feel a sense of belonging. It was really frustrating because I would be made fun of. I'm fluent in Swedish, I'm fluent in Farsi, and technically I'm fluent in English. But like, you know, there are like errors that I make grammatically or the way I describe things, things sometimes that I'm a little off or I have a dialect with every language that I speak, like an accent, and people are like, well, what are you? Where are you from? I get that a lot. What are you? And I'm like, I don't really know how to, like, what am I? I'm, I'm a human being, first of all, but it's just, it's just really hard to answer that question because it's like, well, what are you asking? Because of my color? Because I'm brown? Like, are you asking, like, what country I'm from? Do you want to know my backstory, like, where I grew up and, like, how I came to America? Like, you know, because it just goes so far. I don't really know, like, I don't really know what I am or, like, where I belong and, like, really where I came from. Like, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm 34 years old, and my memories of Sweden are just slowly fading. And as each year goes by, as time goes by, especially with the space, not being able to go back and visit, it's like, now Sweden feels like a foreign territory to me. And that was the language that I once considered my first language, and now my first language is my third language, and now my third language is my first language. And you know, like I think and dream in English now, I don't think and dream in Swedish anymore. And it's just crazy to think Whoa, about. Oh yeah, you know? oh my gosh. Wow. Like someone actually asked me this, I think it was like seven, eight years ago. I was kind of telling my background and, and you know, where I came from and stuff. And the guy, it was actually at this restaurant I worked, he's like, so what language do you think it now? And like dreaming. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never really thought about that. And that night, as I was like counting money, doing my checkout at the restaurant, I was working. It just kind of hit me, like I was counting in Swedish maybe. Or I realized I was counting and then I started trying to count in Swedish. And then all of a sudden I realized I was counting in English. And then I kind of started getting confused and then I started counting in Farsi. But then all of a sudden I realized, oh no, like I'm the most comfortable counting in English. 
And at that point, I realized, oh my gosh, like I don't, Swedish is not my first language. Wow. English is not my first language. This so. idea of belonging is so powerful because the whole concept of nation states of America and Iran and Sweden and or identity around race it's all so actually nonsensical really we are just a species of mammal on a planet one of yeah. billions of planets you belong to a family of homo sapiens everything else is made yeah. up and yet so, I mean, that's that's true. I mean, that really is true. But in the world that we've constructed, that we are in now in 2019, it is not true in reality. You are completely ostracized from all of the structures that we've created. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's so annoying. <laughs> it's like, yeah. why does it... Well, it's like you get asked a lot, like, I mean... Sweden growing up there in the 90s, the area that I moved, I was in like a kind of like a pretty small suburb in Stockholm. And it was, I mean, we were the only brown family in a community of like a couple of thousand people. And there was a lot of racism and there was a lot of skinheads and there was like a lot of like Aryan pride. And I had to get escorted from classrooms in middle school so I wouldn't get physically assaulted by children. The racial slur in Sweden for dark-haired people or like brown people is svartskalle. Svart means black, skalle means head. So that's what they would call us, svartskalle. Oh and then after school, I would get escorted to like kind of like a youth care place. And then they would essentially like watch us until our parents would come and take us home because it was, it was violent. I mean, and looking back now, I'm not really necessarily angry about it because I've experienced racism and discrimination everywhere I've gone. And I think it's just perception is reality. Like when you grow up in a household, when your parents are brainwashing you with hatred and it's a domino effect, like that's what you pass on. Like these kids didn't know better. Right. Like they grew up in a household where their parents, the people that they look up to, that are their role models, are racist people with hateful ideas, and they're telling their children that, like, you know, so-and-so, these people are bad, these the people of color don't belong here, and then that's what they think. 